One last one. I didn't know if I was going to share this one because there's going to be some grumbling here, but here we go. Men are like fine wine. They start out as grapes. It's up to the women to stomp the snot out of them until they're something acceptable to have dinner with. Well, that's our first philosopher. He had uh, some great things written on the, the wall of his sandwich shop. Uh, but as we move on, we look deeper and deeper. And as I get started, I, I want to talk to the seniors, but we know that, that seniors, you didn't get here on your own. And, and seniors, what you don't, um, maybe what you don't realize, because there's a lot of focus on you in these next few days, and we are, we are super, super happy for this step in your life. There's been people that have been praying for you and supporting you so many years. What you may not know in this moment is your parents, your parents are going through some very, very strong feelings right now. They're very, very proud of you, and, and they're so excited, and they're also really, really scared for your next steps. So if I could just take a, a, a moment and say, parents, would you mind standing just, just for a second? Parents of the seniors, would you mind standing up? We want to give you a hand. Thank you for all of your love and support. Thank you, parents. Thank you. As a church, we don't just look at the kids. We understand that families have a powerful influence in the, in the lives of, of their entire family and these students. And, and you know, uh, man, we wish that there was... Uh, some, some sort of licensing to have a kid, but it's, it's really pretty free. Um, and so we just start out not knowing anything, and we do the best that we can. And so, parents, thank you for doing the best that you could. Truth is, all of the good things in your kid are probably the Lord. All of the bad things are probably you. If there's things that you don't like about your kid, it's probably your fault. The next person is... Uh, Someone is who is considered to be one of the wisest people of his time. King Solomon, as you know, is the son of King David. He's a man known. Uh, all over the, the, the local world of his time, people went far and wide to spend time in his court, to see his kingdom, just to spend time listening to the wisdom that he had. Uh, even though Solomon is listed one of the smartest people, he also made tons of mistakes. And this is, uh, this is great for us to, to learn from because... The world will tell you that the, the perfect life is having no mistakes, but Solomon had a ton of wisdom and he made a lot of mistakes, and fortunately, we get to learn from his failures. He had a, a, a significant search for happiness. He lists lots of things that, uh, that he searched for, and scores of people, decades, generations of people since then, have fell into the same traps. And he speaks specifically to most of these major hitters. Again, fortunately, we get to see the insight that he has by, by going through these things. I suspect, and this is just that suspects, that, that I think this guy was depressed. Boy, when you read Ecclesiastes, it's just pretty negative. And this guy had really unlimited money. He had unlimited power. He really could have anything that he wanted. And he was searching diligently for happiness. And here's where he looked. If you look in Ecclesiastes 1, 16 through 18, Solomon looks for happiness and learning. We can see easily that his, his desire in the world, it is believed that more, in, in the world, more knowledge is believed to be a happier life. The more knowledge you have, the happier you will be. Ecclesiastes 1, 16. I said to myself, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all of those who are over Jerusalem before me, 
and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, is madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. He continues to have this poetic cadence in talking about these pursuits, looking for these different things, and he says it's meaningless. This thing ended up being meaningless. He applied his mind to know wisdom and knowledge. It's funny to think about how much the world has changed over the years. So much technology, so many things in health and in science and in math, so many things that have really made our world apparently better, but yet there are some things that really haven't changed. And so long ago, he was able to identify this longing for knowledge, to know things deeper. He said, if I can just apply myself and learn more and more about philosophy and theology and science and astrology and all these other things, then I will be happy. But unfortunately, the more that he understood, the more his heart seemed to question him. In spite of being more educated than any other king in Israel, he could not find what he was looking for. It was meaningless. In chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I said to myself, go ahead and I will test you with pleasure and enjoy what is good. He, tr- he tried pleasures. Now, this is kind of a blanket statement. It's covered within the other things. He just pauses here for a second. It's really talking about anything pleasurable. If you were to think of something that was pleasurable, he's saying, I pursued all of these things. He had unlimited time, unlimited resources, and he had a hunger to find this elusive happiness. He's even known to have sent groups of people up Mount Hermon to get snow so that he could have cold drinks in the summer. We're talking he had vast resources to be able to pursue anything that was pleasurable and see if it provided happiness in his life. He likely had a court gesture. There's, uh, you know, someone to make his laugh. He talked about he engaged in folly. There was a period of time where he just took everything half-hearted or light-hearted and found out if I just don't take anything serious, then maybe I'll find happiness. Then he took a period of time where he took everything really, really serious to see if really focusing made any difference. And he found that nothing scratched that itch. Verse 3, he tried alcohol. I explored the pole of wine on my body. Now, he of course had access to an abundant wine supply. He's known to have many vineyards. And, uh, and kings would expect to be expected to have that kind of uh, acquisition. He said, I want to explore the pole of wine on my body. It's kind of interesting. He says that he, he didn't abandon his mind in this process, so not really sure if he gave himself over into drunkenness or just that effects of alcohol on his body. But either way, he, he knew that there was a, a pursuit of pleasure, and he went to see how much uh, was there. We know that anything that has pleasure to it can lead to uh, either a dangerous addiction or just a strong pull in our lives. And he went down this path and he said, this is folly. It doesn't answer. It doesn't really hit where I'm, I'm looking. I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Verse 4 through 7, he tried accomplishments. He said, I increased my accomplishments. Let me read it. Verse 4, I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. 
he built and he made and he pressed out. No, I don't think that he built these things himself, of course. He, he had the ability to say, well, what if I build this building and I build up my own house and, and, I, and I, I make all these parks and gardens and make the city great. And, and we know, and you probably seniors already know, that there is a, a, a feeling of accomplishment when you work hard on a project. And so you can see there's this, this pull that the world knows of, if I work really hard, I throw myself into my, my work or this cause, that there's a drawing to that and there, there is a, a fulfillment. But he said at the end of the day, after building his empire, that while God does want you to succeed, he does not want you to attempt to find yourself in your work, especially through neglecting your family and your true purpose in life. Verse 8 He tries riches. I also amassed silver and gold for myself in the treasury of kings and provinces. This guy had a ton of money. We couldn't really equate it to today's today's resources. What is it? uh, $260 billion Elon Musk is worth. $260 billion. I think, you know, a million would be good for most of us. Or one billion, you could just live without ever having to look at the price of something. Really, at some point, money stops becoming relevant when you have so much money, and that's really the point here, is that he had unlimited money, and he amassed silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces, as possibly the wealthiest man. It took 14 years to build his house. He was able to throw so much time and, and money into these different things. When we look throughout Scripture, every day... In his household, they would slaughter 30 cattle and 70 sheep just to feed his house. 30 cattle, 70 sheep every day. Guy had some money. You name it, he had it. Except happiness. Why do we keep falling into these traps? Why is this still a thing? If he found this so long ago and being the most extreme example of being the most rich and the ability to, to, to accomplish all of these things to the nth degree, and yet we keep falling in these same traps generation after generation. Verse 8, he tried entertainment, 8, 8b. I gathered male and female singers for myself. He tried entertainment, he tried the arts, he gathered male and female singers it isn't mentioned here, but I'm sure he, he, he had the best entertainment that money could buy at the time. He mentions these singers. I get this picture of this huge choir of the best singers from all over. Probably had an orchestra. I don't know. Like his, if 14 years to build his house, his bedroom was probably huge, and he just had an orchestra pit to sing him to bed, you know. But he pursued these various things and, and found it to be meaningless. Also in the second part of verse 8b there, he tried sex. He gathered many concubines for the delights of men. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 paid mistresses. Wow. I'm not really sure how this works, but I think even back then there was still only 365 days a year. I'm not sure how this, this worked out, but he, uh, he tried. And at the end said it was meaningless. So here's the result in verse 2, 10, and 11. This is my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished 
everything that I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile, a chasing after the wind. If you look over at verse 17, he gives the bottom line. Therefore, after having searched for all of these things to the nth degree, I hated life. Everything is futile, the chasing after the wind. With all of Solomon's wisdom and experience, he had the opportunity to seek after as many of these things as, as possible to find happiness. He couldn't find it. So, if he had all of the, the money and power in the world and couldn't find it, why do we keep doing this? What are we supposed to do? Can we be happy? Can we be content? Can we be satisfied? Is it possible? Well, let's look at another wise man. In contrast to Solomon, who had everything in the eyes of the world and money, land, power, possessions, let's look at someone else. This man was not rich by the world's standards, but lived in such a way in which he loved the people around him, and he loved God. And he stood in a field in the same country as Solomon only many years later, and he addressed a crowd, a crowd of people who had been following him around because there was just something different about this dude. And so on a mountainside, with a huge crowd of people listening to him, a mysterious man named Jesus spoke. See, their culture was filled with religious leaders telling them that they were not good enough to be near God. And Jesus steps up and he had a different message. For the last several weeks, we've been doing a series called Upside Down. And one of the things that was completely transformational about Jesus' message is the world keeps saying this is the right way. And Jesus comes in and he says, that's not the right way. This is the right way. And it seems upside down in its message. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus gives what is called the Sermon on the Mount, the mountainside, the most famous sermon of all time. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, to be honest, I've always struggled with the Sermon on the Mount, knowing that this is such a really, really important message. I've always struggled. There's something about the language in it that's kind of confusing to me. So I hope to bring some clarity to them today. Because I really believe in order for you to find this kind of happiness that God wants you to have, we need to learn from the teachings that Jesus gave us. So let's start with the first word, blessed. As we look at the translation, as you know, in the original language, it, it, there's several different words that are, are synonymous, mean the same thing. And so we get the idea of blessed, we also get the idea of deeply contented, and we also get the idea of happy, truly happy, not situational happiness, where like this thing is right, so I feel good, a good meal or warm room or, or whatever. Not situational, but deeply, fundamentally happy, blessed, happy. Okay, so what does poor in spirit mean? Well, first of all, when we look at poor in spirit, you think, there, there's something that, that's deep about that, poor. It's, it, it's, it's less than or it's lower, it's deeper, and, and spirit is a part of me. So what is less of uh, the, the, this lower piece of me? Well, it's to know fundamentally that, that you can't do it on your own. To be poor in spirit means for you to recognize you can't achieve anything. 
It will lead to meaninglessness, to chasing after the wind. To be poor in spirit is to know your basic need for God. Seniors, if you're taking notes because there's a test for you to get out of this room. Blessed in the poor in spirit means that you know your basic need for God. How does one go about living this out? Make God the center of your life. Make God the center of your life. It's so easy for this bright and shiny new thing to come in and take over the center of your core, of, of your thinking and your feeling and your actions. But Jesus says, blessed, happy are those who understand and know their basic need for God. Only Jesus can fill that void that's deep inside your heart. What does it mean to have a relationship with God in such a way that Jesus is the center of your heart? It means that you know that there's only one way that you can spend eternity with heaven, in heaven with God. And that is if you believe that Jesus died for your sins. You believe that he conquered death and that you can now live like he lived, loving God and loving people. Now talk about happiness. If God created this world and he created you on purpose for a purpose, we should pay attention to how he says you should live life. And Jesus says, at your core, know these things. Number two, Jesus goes on to tell us how to be truly happy in verse four. He says, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is telling us here that life will not be fun and games. Again, different or upside down from what the world says. You'll be happy if there's just nothing bad in your life. Jesus flips that around and says, no, there's going to be things in this life that is not fun. It's quite possible Solomon did never understand this kind of happiness. He had a, a diluted version of happiness. True happiness is less of a situational feeling and more of a deep-rooted understanding that no matter what happens in life, whether good or bad, you turn to God in every situation. Turn to God in every situation, whether it is a celebration or a travesty. Turn to God in every situation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The presence and the guidance that only God can give you in those moments, on the mountaintop and in the valleys, he gives you reason to be joyful in the deepest of sorrow. Happiness comes to those who put him at the center of their lives. Number three, verse five. Happy are those, happy are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus encourages us to expect God to meet our needs. Like Solomon, we have a hunger deeply for things. It's endless. You ask some of the most richest people in the world, how much is enough money? And they say, just a little more. And if the most rich say that, we learn that you will never be satisfied with enough, and it doesn't just stop with money. It, it applies to everything. We want more, we want more, we want more. Expect God to meet your needs. This is upside-down thinking. If we let everything go, and we hold on to nothing, and we trust that God will meet our needs, he will provide, and you will be happy. 
Number four, verse six. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who follow God's instructions. There's a best way to live this, live this life. It comes from the one who created it. Ironically, if, if you're like me and you're making something that you bought, the first thing you throw away is the instruction manual. I can make this. I have to admit, there's a few times where sheepishly I had to go and find the manual because I got it wrong. And we do this in our life. We, we feel like I've got this. I've got this under control. And you seniors, you're at, a, you're at a stage in your life. This is not a slam. This is just a reality. You've learned a lot of things and you've been driven to this line and you feel like you're at the top of the mountain. And in some ways you are so far, but, but you should know that there is a lot more to learn. Never lose a hunger for learning more. Continue to learn for the rest of your life. Around here we talk about that as lifelong learning. There's not going to be a class thrown in front of you saying, here's the next class that you're supposed to take. You have to step in and initiate and say, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to take this next step. Well, God gave us instructions in the Bible. Happy are those that hunger and thirst for following God's instructions. Number five, verse seven. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus teaches us that we are to maintain or cultivate a forgiving heart. To live a truly happy life, we need to get rid of hurt, and hurt is everywhere. Just living in this world, because the world is broken, there will be hurtful things that happen. Because we, the people of this world, are broken. There will be people in your life that will hurt you because of sin. And because of the sin in your own life, there will be sin that you have committed that you will hurt yourself. Jesus says, happy are the merciful. Maintain a cultivating heart for forgiveness. Whether it's the world or other people or yourself, learn to be quick to forgive. Because you've been forgiven. You cannot be happy if you're holding on to that hurt. Forgive and let it go. Number six, verse eight. Maintain a clear conscience. Jesus says, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does it mean to have a pure heart? It means to have a clear conscience before God. Well, with all of the sin that we just mentioned, how can we possibly have a, a, a pure heart before God. The weight of all of your sins weighs heavy upon you. Maybe not all the time or every day, but there's those moments that I'm sure at this point you've all felt the weight of sin in your life. Jesus reminds us to give this to him. The payment that Jesus paid for your sin was enough. We've talked a lot, about, a lot recently here about repeated thoughts become beliefs. There's about 60,000 thoughts a day, and repeated thoughts become beliefs. You need to continue to remind yourself of this thought until it becomes a belief that Jesus' payment for your sin is enough, and be quick to forgive. Number seven, verse nine, happy are the peacemakers. Who are peacemakers? Peacemakers. Some after-school club, 
Who are the peacemakers? Because conflict destroys happiness. Go against the cultural flow. Possibly now more than ever, we see conflict everywhere. There's, there's, it seems like there's no middle ground. You, you like Starbucks or you hate Starbucks. You name it. We could list any number of political or social things, and there's, there's sides. I think the only thing that maybe we could come together on is, is our unified hate for cats. Or, or maybe not. The world is full of conflict. But those who actively go out and build relationships, knowing that they are broken, that the world is broken, but that Jesus forgives, peacemakers go out and they resolve conflict. They step into ugly areas and bring the truth and love of Jesus Christ into those ugly issues in relationships. Peacemakers are people whose relationships are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lastly, number eight, verse 10. Jesus tells us to live a truly happy life. It doesn't make sense to this world. It's upside down. But live with an eternal perspective. Happy are those who are persecuted. Happy are those who are persecuted. That sounds terrible. It's good for us to be reminded that that we have an adversary. Just as true as God exists, we know that the devil exists. And he does not want you to be happy, deeply happy. Especially in the, in the ways that Jesus says it's truly good for you to do, like mentioned in this sermon. The devil is committed against God and against the people of God, and he's perfectly fine with you being unhappy or temporarily happy. But if you're pursuing this kind of relationship with Jesus, this upside-down thinking, The devil will want to step in your way. He will want to interrupt that. Sometimes people will step in your way, not just the devil, but other people, and they'll look at you and they'll say, for believing these things, for following these things, that is foolish. But happy are those who have an eternal perspective, knowing that this life will end. In the measure of all eternity, it's just a drop in the bucket. This life is quick. And you and I, we were made with a specific purpose. Picture of a puzzle. You are a puzzle piece that was specifically designed to fit in in a way that no one else was. God has called you to love him and love the people around you. Only you can accomplish loving those people that are in your proximity. Live with an eternal perspective. It's good for us to be reminded that one day God is coming back to judge the world. We don't have forever. We've been given instructions to share the truth with the world. And because of this, Jesus says, if you're persecuted for doing these things, your reward is in heaven. It might be temporarily uncomfortable if people look down on you for your faith. But you have eternity to make up for it. So, what have we learned? Well, generation after generation keeps falling into the same traps. There's nothing new under the sun. 
you might be tempted to say, well, these other people, they, they, didn't really, they didn't really do it the right way. And you might be tempted to try it on your own. Wisdom learns from people in front of you. It's so fun to go on a hike and just blaze new trails. But when the hike gets uh, a little scary, it's nice to have somebody with you who's been there before to navigate the right way out of the woods. There's been a few times where I've been, been climbing and just, just going up, and I can't tell you the relief that I found when I found an established path. What did I do? I got on that path that was well-worn and established for me. Seniors, as you step into this new world, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to, to blaze trail. And I encourage you to learn from those who have gone before you, and specifically from Jesus, who has blazed trail for us, saying, this is the right way to live life. I'm going to tell you a secret. Now, don't tell anybody this. I believe that in the next couple of years, you're going to truly come into your faith. Not to say that you don't have a faith now. I do think that you have a faith. Just scientifically speaking, your, your brain will actually finish developing the next couple of years. Well, to be fair, girls, your brain is fully developed. Guys, you still have, I mean, it's a joke, but it's actually true. The prefrontal cortex, uh, cortex will, can, will uh, solidify around 22 for, for men. And all I mean by that is, is there's something about these next stages when you step out of your home and, and you've got uh, just, you know, hopefully really, really healthy walls around you. You've got people who are speaking into your life and, and they're doing all sorts of things for you that has influenced your faith. You didn't choose this church. Your parents did. And whether you want to or not, a lot of times they drag your butt out of bed and bring you to church. In these next few years, that's going to be on you. And so in the next few years, what you truly have at your core will be reflected in your life. And so you will truly come into your faith. What you really believe will come out in your actions, in your, your feelings. I hope that you don't fail. I really hope that you don't. I hope that you can learn from the people before you and, and avoid some of these mistakes that, that Solomon showed us. But if you do, I hope that you quickly will turn back to some of the thinking that Jesus showed us. Know your deep need for God. Learn to trust God in all of your circumstances. Learn to depend on God to meet your needs. We hope you continue to learn and follow God's instructions in your life from his word. We hope that you learn to be quick to forgive yourself and others. We hope that you maintain a clear conscience and, and constantly remind yourself that Jesus' sacrifice for your sins was enough. We hope that you build strong and healthy relationships in your life. And we hope that you live with an eternal perspective. As you have been around us, you'll know that one of the things that, that we love to do is we love to talk about church being a, a family. You have your, your little family, and if you're a believer, you have the church family. And one of the things that the church stands for, regardless of where you go, this group of people or around the world, Christians gather together and they remind themselves of the centrality of Jesus to their story. And one of the powerful ways that we do that is through communion. So I'm going to have Pastor Chris come up and lead us in communion together.
Well, we've had a uh, really wonderful morning celebrating these young people and sending them off. And just as, as Pastor Thad mentioned, we're going to send them off in the same way that all of us need to be sent off, which is uh, rooted and anchored in the truth. In the, the brief letter, Second John, uh, John gives us a warning that seems very timely for these seniors and, and timely for, for each of us. Uh, verse 9, he says, Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ, does not have God. Let me say that again. Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And he goes on to offer a contrast. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And this word in verse 9 translated goes on ahead. It means essentially to progress. And now, in a lot of ways, being progressive is, is important. We want these young people to progress in their lives, to progress in their faith. Uh, all of us, when we're talking about the things that we do as a church, we want to be progressive. We want to be constantly reaching out and impacting our community with the gospel. But when it comes to the truth, we don't want to be progressive. We want to be embracing the truth about, as, as this passage tells us, the truth about uh, Jesus that's rooted in uh, this historical record of his life and his death on our behalf. And, and Jesus himself institutes communion, saying, do this in remembrance of me. We, we look back at what Jesus has done so that we can move ahead. We realign ourselves with his truth so that we can continue to move forward in living out love, not just pursuing our own self-interests like uh, the Solomon, uh, the, the example from Solomon. And it's one of the reasons that we observe communion. It's a chance for us to pause, to realign ourselves as individuals and as a faith family, a chance for us to look back so that we can move ahead rooted and anchored in the truth. And as we prepare to observe communion, I'm going to ask the uh, folks who are serving to come forward now. And this truth about Jesus coming in the flesh, that's exactly what we commemorate this morning. As the scripture tells us, on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, it is indeed your, uh, the truth about you, the, the truth about your life, your, the wisdom that you uh, gave us as you walk the earth, and yet even more than that, the, the life that you gave up for us, the death that you died on our behalf to pay the sins that our punishments deserve. That's the truth that uh, anchors us, that roots us. And I pray especially for these seniors this morning that that truth would be just deeply embedded in them, that this act of communion would be especially significant for them as it is for all of us to be able to uh, remind ourselves to, to partake of that truth of who you are and what you've done for us and let that guide us to, to live out love as we go on ahead as we progress in the world. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
seniors, we're so proud of you. Thank you for, um, well, just allowing us to be in your life. And so, uh, seniors, I'd like you to stand one more time. We're going to pray this benediction over you. I see a lot of you still holding your communion cups. Pastor Chris, okay. Uh, why don't you just take, uh, can we pull some music up again? You guys, you, you celebrate communion on your own there. That's fine. 